0: hello there just before we start just a couple of things um, the podcast uh, today was recorded over skype so you're gonna hear some skype noises and uh, it when it for some reason my uh, microphone was only recording in mono uh, rather than stereo so i'm a bit quiet i've tried to fix it but uh, I don't know how well how well i've done that and the other thing is, it's been pointed out to me by someone very, very smart and very uh, amazing uh, that people may not actually be aware what an ATU is, and we talk about it a lot, and um, that may leave a few people being like, what are they even talking about? So an ATU is an assessment and treatment unit, and it's somewhere where people with learning disabilities may be sent to kind of treat, whatever that means, treat them uh, to make them kind of have an easier transition into society society and the community, etc. And as you'll hear, that's not what happens. So I've got my drumsticks in my hands and my glockenspiel beaters in my feet, and I'm going to play the theme tune live, just like I do every single week. Uh, Okay then, see you never. Welcome to Challenging Behaviours, the podcast that aims to challenge behaviours towards disability in society. I'm Jack, and on my screen, and so not, you know, not actually physically here with me, Tom's here! Hello. Uh, He left and he just keeps coming back and back and back, so I'm leaving!
1: (laughs) Here he is again! I just thought I'd hop on. Well, you've got me. It works on Skype, so you can have me whenever you want me. Uh, <laughs>
0: uh, what? Who Who were we talking to today, Tom?
1: We were talking to the lovely Ian Birrell.
0: Yeah, so Ian is a journalist, and he's done a lot of work recently on um, shedding light on the treatment of people who are in ATUs. And we had a great chat. Uh, very, yeah. very hey. interesting. Um,
1: do so we have his Twitter? Should I get his Twitter up? I feel uh, like. Yeah. His we website should... is ianbirrell.com.
0: Yeah, he um, he does he does give you some stuff at the end. He didn't mention his Twitter. Uh, and his Twitter is at Ian Easy. Ianbirrell. Ian Birrell.
1: Birrell.
0: Oh, I'm um, I'm gonna try this. Probably not gonna work. So I recently heard some statistics about podcasts and. You know, when people ask for likes, subscribes and reviews, they always do it at the end. But apparently about 80 to 85 percent of podcast listeners don't actually listen to the end of a podcast. So they never actually do that. So if you're listening uh, to be fair, right now and you're on the old I've Apple. Yeah, if you're on the old. Uh, I've never even listened to a full episode of us.
1: so <laughs> I haven't listened to one in ages. I could be saying awful things. I never know.
0: Um, so if you're listening now and you listen to it on your phone, just get
1: your little phone
0: out. Go on the old, what's it, Apple Podcasts. Give us a little review and some stars and stuff. Because that means more, especially, I think, especially, I really want to do a big push for this episode because I think it's a really important story that needs to be out there. And if the more reviews we get, the more likely this will go around and more people will hear it. And, you know, hopefully we maybe try and influence some kind of change. Yeah, You never know. So you can do that. Uh anyway, so yeah, here's here's the chat. Uh enjoy. Yes. Or don't. Do what you want. Tom's showing me his flowery trousers.
2: Okay. So ask whatever you want and uh fire away and then let's let's go.
0: Brilliant. Um so well must we'll start right there. So how did you first kind of catch wind of the kind of treatment uh, that some uh, people with autism have been uh, facing in uh, ATUs,
2: etc.? Um, how, well,
0: how did that first become, come to your attention?
2: Obviously, I'd seen and heard about it for a few years because um, uh, with my own personal interest in, in uh, issues of disability and particularly learning disability... Uh, I, you know, go to conferences and follow social media closely and things like that. And so I was aware there was this long running issue of grave concern to some parents about ATUs, but I hadn't really taken on board the full horror of it or really comprehended exactly how grotesque it was, I guess, until in a way the case of Bethany uh, drove it home so clearly when there was an item I heard on the radio on the file on four program. And then I spoke to her father and it sort of was like, um, it all suddenly fell into place as I understood exactly what was going on by talking to her, uh, by talking to Jeremy, to Jeremy and, uh, listening to his story and the case of, of a girl in her teens, basically being imprisoned in solitary confinement in such barbaric conditions. And, um, that then made sense of all the other cases, which I'd heard about. And uh, I guess in a way I was quite slow to pick it up. Yeah. But um, if I was slow to pick it up, then I think that shows, given my own interest in it, how how difficult it was to for people to get their head around it. And then I guess because I wrote about it in a very emotive way, um, that helped sort of bring lots of other cases out into the open. And I think because of my own personal situation, I guess some of the parents who might have been slightly hesitant of talking to journalists felt able to trust me to tell their stories.
0: Wow. Um, so how, so you, so you come, came to hear about Bethany and then what, how, what did you do to kind of find out more? So were you going around well, to ATUs? Were you talking to different parents?
2: What? No, no I wrote, I wrote about Beth's case and, Uh, the piece got hugely picked up and was raised in Parliament. Barbara Keely, Labour's shadow spokesperson for um, social care and mental health, raised it. And Matthew Hancock, who'd just taken over as um, health secretary, said he'd read it as well and promised to address it personally and to investigate it and talk to um, the family about it. Then I just thought, well, I needed to look a bit closer at it. I've written a lot about how... In my view, people with learning disabilities are the most excluded group within society. Mm-hmm. About they are, you know, the things that are going on to people with learning disabilities just would cause such horror and outrage if they were going on to other communities in yeah. this country. I agree. In terms of the hate crimes, in terms of the abuse, in terms of the housing, in terms of the educational failures, in terms of the health failures, in terms of the job failures. And so I'd written a lot about that already, particularly about hate crimes and about problems in the NHS. And so I guess I bought some of that to bear in a couple more pieces in the iPaper. And then I went to I also write I write a column for the iPaper and also I do a lot of work with the Mail on Sunday for whom I'm contributing editor. And so I went to them and said, Listen, this is just abhorrent what's going on. It's barbaric. It's like something from Victorian times. And often I've found in the past papers quite like me or interested in me writing personal pieces, but uh, are not necessarily that enthusiastic about issues surrounding learning disabilities because they're hard to get across to the public in a sort of way that engages with them. And so I was really pleased that the Mail on Sunday editor and deputy editor really went for it and gave me back in. We did three pages on it Uh, with 10 different case histories and um, a big read informed by various parents. And I think that really kicked off to do it in like that sort of way in a mainstream publication, a mass market paper uh, with the power that they gave it. Uh, And it it sort of touched a nerve and got an incredible response. And so um, that was sort of how it all kicked off. And then basically they had an insatiable appetite for me to do more pieces, which I was very happy to do. And the more it was raised, the more cases came in that just sort of almost got worse and worse. So we had whistleblowers came. There was Ian Somers and his colleagues from a home down in the West Country. Uh, and Ian was saying, again, very brave. They put their jobs on the line uh, saying that, you know, what was going on was worse than he'd seen before in his previous job at Broadmoor. We had the case of Carl uh, Gibbons in Scotland who... Uh, Had gone in for a short checkup in an ATU and several years later as in Carstairs their equivalent Broadmoor uh, Which again is kind of beyond belief and there was a whole series of these and more and more families coming forward and of course It shows up also not just the the I think sort of bigotry and and abuse towards people with autism and learning disabilities and the idea that you can have someone there for 18 years without when they go in for a short stay but also the profiteering going on with private companies coming into this and earning unbelievable sums from it. The fact that it's all a worse way of looking after people and helping them, supporting them. So it costs more and makes their condition worse. It was a very clear way to cast a light, I think, into the, the dire state of mental health services in this country. Yeah. Uh, what I was very keen to do was keep it in a sort of narrow, clear focus on the fact that here was this excluded community being grotesquely abused
1: yeah
0: i i completely agree when you say you know um about people with learning disabilities kind of being like the phrase that comes to mind is like the the forgotten minority um and how like on social media uh not long ago you you would see lots of stories from america where lots of people couldn't believe the terrible human rights abuses going on for for the children um who are are like being deported and being kept in cages, and they didn't seem to be aware that, you know, we're kind of doing that here to people with learning disabilities.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's phenomenal. Something which really struck home to me was I also, in December, went off to Belgium and Holland to do a big read about euthanasia. And the interesting thing about uh, Belgium is that they allow people to... Apply uh, for um, a sister's death on the basis that they have extreme mental distress, uh, extreme mental health difficulties. And eventually I found a, a, a woman who was prepared to talk to me about her own case. And she was this very bright woman, an academic, a physicist in her, I think, late 20s. And what absolutely blew me away was when she told me why she was in such a state of mental distress that she'd been given permission by the authorities to kill herself. And the reason was was because for five years she was autistic and she had been locked up in exactly the same sort of conditions as I've been looking at in, in Britain. And that was kind of really mind blowing that it's such a damaging thing that people is being done to people that it left this very bright, able, you know, nice woman in that sort of state that they sanctioned the idea that she might want be able to kill herself. And I think that really drove home just how barbaric the system is, that what we're doing to to people who look for support and instead get absolutely traumatised and abused and treated in such an inhumane manner.
0: Yeah. Uh, listeners, it's worth mentioning that Tom is also here on the line. Yeah,
1: I was, um, I was just on your website and having a little look, and I was going to say the one that really stuck with me, of your the many pieces you did, was the one about the um, restraint that led to someone breaking their neck. And I remember reading that, and obviously, sadly, because of the insight that I have, none of it really surprises me when I read the stuff you do. Obviously, I'm as shocked as anyone else, but I kind of, I'm not surprised it's happening because we are, like you say, the the barbaric nature of it is so common now. But that one really stuck with me as just a sort of, just reading it and being like, this is, this is in England. This is our, our NHS, our, our society is doing this to people. It kind of. Even- being
2: funded by taxpayers, of course, isn't it? We're yeah, exactly. funding this sort of barbarity and this in- inhumanity yeah, we're in the healthcare it. and support. And I mean, the one that really struck me is I remember in my very first week, I spoke to this woman whose son had been taken away from her and, um, she told me about how after a few weeks she thought she was doing the right thing for her son. The authorities, the doctors, the people you trust had said to her, you know, your son's having a bad time. Let's take him and let's put him into an ATU an assessment and treatment unit. We'll have a look at him and then we'll sort of fix him. So this mother trusted these people and she put her son in and the next time she went to see him, uh, he was just in an appalling state. He would blown up with drugs. He could barely speak. Um, you know, he, he was complaining of restraint, etc. And she just said, in that moment, I realised that I'd failed as a mother. And just thought, this is so grim that parents are being put through that by the people you trust, by the people you think will help. I think that was a that was a really terrible moment.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's very like common in a lot of parents. Like I can speak for my mum as well, where it is this. It's not as much, It's awful for the person who goes through it as an individual but also the wider effect on families even even if the person does end up coming out of the atu is is just this feeling that you're told you should do this because it's the right thing to do and it's being a good parent and then you kind of watch as your child is put through all of this and it feels at least the people that i swing to about it 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 just feels like you you're letting them down but you have no other option and it's we have created a sort of yeah Yeah. exactly we have created a system where a lot of parents reach a point where they can't do anything but let their child go into an ATU and they're basically given no option and then they're made to feel by the system that they are failing parents and their child is left to suffer it is really it is really difficult to even fathom and sort of think about and the more that you talk about it and things like that's why the pieces you do are so great because it reaches people who haven't heard it before because if you have if you don't have an attachment to it you don't have a family member or a close friend who goes through it there is not common knowledge that this happens and because it would kind of be almost a national scandal if it properly got through to people that this was happening because it's like jack said it's kind of like a forgotten minority where we not ignore but we don't necessarily engage with the awfulness of it. And it is, I can't think of another group that would, this would happen to it so, so often. I mean, there's so many people going through it currently even, and you've written tons of articles and we've, our, the Justice for LB campaign had tons of people speaking their truths about it. And it is just that, like thinking about it now is, is unbelievable, isn't it?
2: Like how we can. But the depressing thing is actually, even now, even when we've had, you know, your mum has done incredible work she's battled her head against the system uh you know we've had the backing of the biggest selling sunday newspaper writing you know and really putting its weight behind it in a fantastic way in a very connective way that people can understand i your child is taken off you by the state and brutalized uh, and abused by the state and it's a very the idea of putting any human being in a in a box where they're fed on the floor and, um, you know, six men come and get a teenage girl and inject them with, with drugs to to, plac- to placate them. Uh, the idea that they're trapped in these rooms being watched the whole time. It's a very connective way. And it has led, you know, uh, the work that, that the paper has done has now led to five different inquiries, which is brilliant. But my terrible fear is that at the end of it, very little is going to change. Yeah. We've already seen the Department of Health under Matt Hancock. I know Matt Hancock, I used to work in politics, Uh, he promised that he was going to change and he was genuinely moved by all this and then they kicked it into the long grass and they've slowed down, they've actually made it slower, the system of trying to get people out, which is just unbelievable. I think the Children's Commissioner has really got a teeth into it and is doing, I hope, fantastic work and I think that's the best hope of seeing change. Harriet Harman's committee has been really, you know, she's been brilliant on it. Um, And we have got a Scottish inquiry as well into the Scottish stuff, particularly into Carstairs. But still my fear is at the end of it, we might get a tiny little bit of change, a little, but the trouble is it's a very easy thing to solve because the vast bulk of these people should not be kept inside. They should be outside, which would be cheaper and more humane and more supportive. It's such a simple thing that could be ended in a year. You know, it's not a complicated thing, but my fear is that at the end of all this and at the end of the best hope we've got, I think, with with this push that we'll see very, very little change and still uh hundreds of families will be ripped apart and hundreds of individuals will be abused in a style we all thought had been banished to Victorian era. Yeah, and
0: it's funny, like so obviously a lot of your stories were in the in the Daily Mail, which is, you know, the biggest selling newspaper but i'm sure if i went out onto the streets and be like have you heard about what's been going in atus a lot of people would still be like i don't even know what that is
2: um, i'm sure i think that's true uh it was actually just to correct you slightly it was a mail on sunday oh, there sorry. Are um <laughs> but uh no i think that's very true i mean i think at least now more people know about it which is good and i've had some lovely letters from readers who admit they knew nothing about it so but yeah i'm sure most people would not know what an atu is most people would not really know that this was going on, and still, I sometimes tell people, and they look at me as though you know something's wrong with me when I say this is going on in Britain.
0: Yeah, it's, it's hard, to believe, yeah. <laughs> it hard to believe.
2: Yeah, it's hard to believe. Yeah, it's
1: it's it's almost so hard to believe that people don't don't want to engage with it as well. I think it's it's kind of so horrific that you it's easier to not ignore, but just keep going on with your life as it was and kind of shut it out a bit because it is just heartbreaking really even even if you have no connection to read something like like these stories is just so
2: difficult because it's
1: and it is, like you say, it's victorian
2: it's and there's lots i haven't touched on yet you know there's the whole fact that a lot of people with autism and learning disabilities end up being criminalized by this yeah because the system isn't there to help them they end up uh, having meltdowns they end up Uh, Somehow having a confrontation and they end up in jail and they fill up the jails They can't get a job then because they've got been criminalized Uh, The fact that it starts in schools with kids being excluded from schools because the facilities aren't there in schools There's so many related issues. The fact that actually what you're seeing here are child mental health uh, places which are just grotesque and I'm only focusing really on kids with autism and learning disabilities, but I'm also getting a, an absolutely horrifying glimpse into quite how abusive the system is. And again, I've spoken to so many parents in tears down the phone as they tell me about their children who have maybe died or have been driven into extreme trauma by the fact that the health services supposed to help them so are so terrible. And again, you know, these are, it's kind of unbelievable any of this is happening.
1: Yeah. my my question I guess from what you said because you brought up Matt Hancock and things like that. Um I was wondering what you think is the like a positive next step because we've seen it for years now of these issues come up and like you say they say they'll do something and they push it to the side. There's like multiple reasons that happens. Um but do you think what do you think would be a really great positive next step from the government as a as a way of showing and I guess showing families that they care and that change will come and actually not just showing them but doing as well do you think there's something that well you I, think
2: could do? I think it's easy they could do which is just to say we're going to get everyone or 80 percent of people in atus out with autism and learning disabilities within 12 months it's not a hard thing yeah. to do. and to say we're going to take this money that we're spending these vast sums and put them into community care and good because a lot of community care is terrible you know we shouldn't forget that it's not some kind of fear. A lot of people with learning disabilities are dumped in the worst parts of towns where they're more likely to get picked on. They're dumped in inadequate housing. They're not helped to get jobs, et cetera. So, um, you know, there's, there's so much to be done. But, um, but there are very good examples around the country as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, we shouldn't forget there are some organisations, there are some individuals, there are some councils, there are some commissioners who are doing good work and are doing great work. And, you know, one of the good things has been I've spoken to some brilliant people who are, you know, putting mind boggling effort into helping this system and helping people. Um, but you know, unfortunately I just don't have much faith that I will hear anything like I'd like to hear from the government. And I think the evidence is we saw that they've actually slowed it down since, since I began writing about this in such a, in such a um, paper in such a strong way, they've actually gone backwards, not forwards. so I'm not over-optimistic.
0: And why do, you, why do you think that the government might not have, why do you think they might not be willing to, you know, implement what could potentially be quite an easy change? Why, why is there like a, no, we'll just leave things as they are, even though they're seeing all this horror what, and, you know, they've said, oh, we'll do something in however many years. Why, why, do, not, why do you think there's no sense of urgency there? From them.
2: I think it's a good question. I think the truth is politicians are risk averse, so they don't want to take decisions which will backfire on them. So they're scared of maybe helping people get out who then, you know, cause trouble. Um, uh, it's also easier not to do anything than to do anything. And I think they get a lot of advice from all sorts of people, including lobbyists for the health providers within the NHS and within the private sector, and making lots of money mm-hmm. and getting all this information and they probably just think it's a few hysterical parents, and, you know, they probably think, for my personal reasons, I'm, you know, pushing this, and it's easy to ignore. There's no votes in this. Yeah, there's, it's, uh, a, it's you something know,
0: we've um, posited a few times, is that um, the politicians don't really focus on disabilities issues, because there's kind of a assumption that a lot of people with disabilities don't vote, so they don't feel the need to you know, talk about those issues, and work with people with disabilities all well, because it's not in any way going to you know, help them
2: would you which, say, of course, which of course is very silly when there's, what it, I mean I don't quite believe the official figure of 11 million people but whatever there's several million people with disabilities and they all have families and if you have a family with a disability issue within it quite often it's a profound aspect of your life and um, I would have thought a wise politicians instead of just playing lip service to this would actually go out and do something uh, on purely selfish political grounds, even if need be. Um, uh, I mean, my view is what I'm trying to do is shame them. I want to That's put such cases in the public arena that they are just shamed and shocked. And I, what's really good is I get a fantastic response from readers, uh, which has been... So I wrote about Mended House this weekend in the paper, where um, it's one of the worst cases of abuse since Winterbourne View and it's a place run by the National Autistic Society, and they got there was really bad bullying. Someone was made to be sick by eating gross food and then made to drink their own sick. They were ridden by horse, you know, really bad stuff going on, and um, they got a £4,000 fine. That's it, no prosecutions, and I wrote about that, and, um, you know, that article's been really heavily retweeted, and I was told that It got 100,000 hits in just two hours yesterday morning, 36 hours after I'd written it. So there is, what's interesting is I think if you can express these issues in a way which really drives home to people how barbarous it is and um, how the authorities are really failing people, I do think a lot of the public are quite sympathetic. And that's a a good thing that I've seen.
0: Yeah, and what, what can, like... So those who are reading the article uh, and don't have any kind of personal kind of connection to those kind of stories, they don't have family members with disabilities, autism, anything
2: of that nature.
0: What what can they do to kind of help implement a change? Do you think?
2: Well, it's a good question. I think uh, one of the problems in this day and age is people think that if you sign an online petition, that oh. maybe you know. <laughs> uh, and I get inundated all the time with people saying, "You know, sign this petition or whatever." which is great and it's well-meaning and I'm not mocking it, but it isn't, I don't think, the way to achieve real societal change. I think what I would say to people you can do is go out in your own community and engage with people. Uh, a lot of the problems we have with learning disabilities and physical disabilities are that people don't mix. So if you run a business, make an effort, reach out, see if you can get people in. If you, Whatever you do, if you run a film club, a book club, a social club, a, a gym, whatever it is, just go out and try and engage. And if we can bring people in from from the edges of society, bring people in from the fringes of society and get people mixing and humanise people, then I think that's really how we're going to make change. And so for me, the really important thing people can do is is jobs. You know, if you have someone in the office uh, who is perhaps a bit different, just the same as we've done with other minorities, I think that's the way to affect change. Uh, I think a lot of people, it's driven not by malice, but by fear. And um, it's, over. you know, basically most people I think are good people and mean well, but British people, you know, have problems with showing emotion and um, and and reaching out and they can be a bit shy uh, or not quite sure what to do. And I think anything that can break down the boundaries is really good. So what I would say to people, actually, is just get out there and engage in small ways or big ways, whatever it is, just whatever within your circle do what you can to embrace a community which I think is totally excluded from mainstream society and that's the way we'll have real change. I think
1: that's that's something that we've spoken about as well from the beginning of this podcast. We're on nearly episode 26 and I think most episodes it comes back to this idea that it's just a lack of integration. It's um, You don't know people with learning difficulties unless you are a family member or a close friend of a family who have a son or daughter. It kind of the school system and society as a whole is all set up to kind of keep us apart and it is like you say it's it's just a matter of the more that you know and you can attach a person to what you read so if you read an awful statistic but you know someone it, it begins to come together and actually you begin to change your whole attitude because you know you can there's an emotional cost to it now as opposed to kind of a far away that doesn't affect your life at all that's sad but it's not going to change the way that you vote or the way that you approach a discussion whereas I think like you say it's the more that we can get people to know each other in the same way you'd look out for any of your friends it'd be great if you'd look out for everyone that way and I think yeah that is that is the nail on the head isn't it really is the, but i guess how do we do that is, is the scary bit but.
2: and it probably will change over time in truth but it's just anything we can do to speed up that change yeah. makes makes a difference um that that is the big challenge i think but i do think the whole jobs thing is so important and the schools thing is so important because these are normalizing environments uh where people mix with people who they might not mix with otherwise um, which is why the whole thing about kids being kicked out of school is such an important start of this whole process yeah but uh, that's another episode for you <laughs>
0: okay. so as we've been talking about uh, like jobs et cetera uh we um i've recently be, i recently did a training and there was a lot of talk about um employers having like they they don't they they fear that they can't accommodate the needs of someone uh, who has a learning disability or uh, any kind of additional need really and how do you think there's a way to eliminate that fear
2: well again partly you use the word fear and i think that's the right word yeah. because often it is fear and it's not justified and obviously some jobs cannot be done by some people we have to accept that um But equally, you don't get much sense of many employers going out and trying to do the best. There are some. I mean, I know major uh, multinationals who have been quite inspired for maybe because someone senior within that, you know, has got an issue within their family. Maybe they did. I know Sainsbury sponsored the Paralympics back in London in 2012. And I think that was quite a wake up call for them because they realized what an issue it was and decided from that to really push out on this front. So, um, you know, there are companies that are doing stuff. Um, but again, and it's, again, I suspect it's not really legislative is the answer. It's, 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 again, it all comes down to attitudes and desire and, um, and I guess shaming as well. Yeah,
0: Uh, definitely. I, I, I remember, um, being at a job fair last year. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, and I was speaking to a young woman with, um, autism, and if she said something, and it's always kind of stuck with me ever since. She said, I'm looking for a job, but jobs aren't looking for me. And I think that really pretty much, it just summarizes like, everything you've just said.
2: And equally, you know, there's some amazing examples abroad like that. Um, I don't know if you know, there's a design studio in Barcelona where they focus on getting people with Down syndrome and autism to work there because they love the fact that some of these people have a different approach to the world and to design, and, and they actually see this as a really big benefit with their approach to design. So it's a fully integrated studio, um, but they actually go out and embrace people who are different because they think that enhances their creativity. And I think the more companies who are like that, who understand that because someone sees the world differently, that might be a benefit rather than a, rather than a disbenefit, uh, you know, that's a really good thing yeah no definitely I think um the
1: like it's also I guess the approaches in different countries to learning difficulties can be like quite amazing because I remember my mum talking about when they did the Camino and they were walking through Spain they were meeting like town mayors and stuff like that and they were saying they're telling Connor's story which I guess is a is, as we've learned is kind of a story for a lot of families um and these people just couldn't believe it but England such a you know economically big country and such a well-known um power is doing this that was sort of beyond them like to treat anyone like that so i think as well that that's something that really stuck with me and i guess
2: weirdly when i've been abroad and i've seen how in some very poor countries people actually go out of their way you know to them they embrace people with disabilities in the way that you don't see in richer countries and it's quite interesting you know, I'm told within some uh, Muslim societies to be disabled is seen as a gift from God, and the whole community has to come round and and sort of exploit that by helping. And it's quite interesting when you see some of the difficult the dis the the differences in approach to disability, uh, even in places where you would think it's much harder because there's less money around. Actually, sometimes they are more progressive than richer countries in their attitudes, even if they don't have the money.
0: That's really interesting. I've not, I've not really heard about that before.
2: Yeah, no, you do. So, I mean, I see it, I go to Africa a lot, and I see it there, where, you know, it's incredibly hard for people with disabilities, and again, quite often they are right on the fringes of, of you know, terrible, terribly difficult societies, but equally they're embraced, I think, more within their communities than often you might see in a wealthier society. But of course, having said that, uh, people with learning disabilities can get treated in the most (laughs) appalling ways, you know, chained trees and all this sort of stuff. So um, I'm not sure there's any nirvana necessarily on this. Yeah, I guess it varies place to place. It's always,
1: I think that just stuck with me, the idea of people being shocked and unable to fathom that England, somewhere which is kind of so known as well for its welfare state and kind of being things like the nhs and stuff being so awful and as you said barbaric to a certain group of people is
2: i think that's part of the problem that people worship the nhs here i mean i've written a lot about this everyone says the nhs is you know the greatest thing about britain well sorry it isn't it has really bad outcomes yeah. it's great that we don't have to pay for it directly at point of source but it has really bad outcomes on a lot of conditions from infant mortality through to cancer and heart failure and for people with disabilities it's really bad Uh, uh, You know, I have a real issue with this idea of the NHS as one of the wonders of the world when you've seen how it treats some of the people who need its support most. Um, And I think that's a real sort of uh, misnomer, not misnomer, that's the wrong word, but a sort of mistaken approach Mm -hmm. with the NHS. It isn't wonderful. It's an institution. And like any institutions, it has its good and its bad. One of its bad things is it has a really terrible record of essentially bigotry in the way it approaches people with learning disabilities and it allows a lot of them to die and yeah that's a harsh fact to say but it's true i think that's the something that i've come across
1: since what happened to connor is this idea that if you say anything that remotely implies that you don't 100% think the nhs can do no wrong you suddenly become it's kind of like you've <gasps> punched the queen You're in the face yeah it's it's like you hate
2: the world although um, the weird thing is because you or i have permission to do it in a way that other people don't, which is why I think it's really important that you do speak up and we do speak up because we've seen insights and there are many people who share the same insights but don't necessarily have the platform to, to raise these issues. And I think it's so important to just keep pointing out that the NHS is a flawed institution like every other institution. Um, and it's so, so bad. I think this this idea that it's this sacred thing which can't be criticised. And you're not advocating privatisation if you're saying that you don't want it to exactly. kill them. Yeah, I think... Um, and even if you I'm, are, to be honest, advocating privatisation, there are private uh, approaches in European countries, uh, even social democrat European countries, which are far advanced to our own system of care. So it's a, it's, I think it's a really reductive argument. What matters is the best possible outcome, the best possible health care. And that's a debate we don't seem to be grown up enough to have in this country. I think I think
1: yeah because I read I read an article and I think the one line of it that really like I just remember so vividly was they basically it was a kind of the point you're making about um being able to criticize the NHS and they just said that if if naive Bevan could see the NHS now he'd be sort of turning in his grave because it wasn't what he it wasn't what he created he didn't create this he, if you look at what they intended to make and what we've got now it's a kind of this the way it's been shifted and twisted and the treatment of people with learning difficulties and stuff is never it was never the intention. So to to not hold them to account for that.
2: Oh no. You're right. No. <laughs> We're still there. We lost you.
0: I think we've lost Tom. I've just got a still image of his face. He had a moment of panic <laughs> as well. So I don't know what just happened there. But uh yeah, so so he was so Tom was just saying in like principle the NHS you know it was supposed to be something amazing and help everyone and just through regulations and the system and everything like that it's just it's just become I don't know if shambles would be an appropriate word but um, well,
2: Tom's moved. back oh, sorry.
0: <laughs> I think I cut out there didn't I you sorry. Did. Sorry. Uh, were you talking that entire time
1: uh, no, <laughs> no
2: I, I... you were saying they cut you out <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, it was just the um, it, the, the shift and the way it's been changed is not at all what it was set up to be. So like you say, if we can't criticise it for that reason alone. That it, surely the most kind of pro-NHS thing you can do is want it to get better.
2: Particularly for the people who need it the most. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and also the idea that you know your family or my family don't want... A most effective NHS. When you know we're the people who rely on it, totally exactly. more almost than a lot of families. Exactly,
1: I think that's something that needs to be hammered home. And is I think the people fighting that corner are are doing it in the correct way, like you said, of just you do, making it clear that you're not you're not some sort of crazy privatiser who wants to make money off people's injuries and stuff. It is, it is a it's a case of I would I, w- I want the free NHS and I love the NHS as an idea, but the way it's being done right it's now.
2: It's not of, of course. It's not free.
1: Yeah, yeah, free at the point of use as well, which is another reason we should be able to criticise it because we do still pay for it. It's um, yeah. and even if it was completely free, not being able to criticise it makes no sense anyway because that's the kind of if you don't criticise something, mean, it
0: could do anything.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, that was I yeah, I don't know how strong does. that point point will be when it gets cut out halfway through but we'll have to
2: see well you can take it back to atus of course because the one thing that we've seen with atus are some very rapacious private companies who have muscled in on this sector yeah their um stake in it and are making you know they have a business model founded on debt and uh borrowing money to open up new centers and then they have to fill these new centers and so i do think that although i'm someone who has no problem uh with private and best private firms within the health system, equally what we see with ATUs is that they do need very strong control and regulation or they run riot. And that's unfortunately what we've seen with some, some really bad practices being allowed to exist within the treatment of people with learning disabilities. So you've taken us on a full circle very cleverly yeah, and skillfully. I,
0: I think that's a good actual point for us to round it up. So just coming up just to notice the time, uh, Ian, thank you so much. Um, thank you. it's been very much. fascinating. It's been great. Um, uh, so if anyone, where's the best place people can see your work?
2: Uh, well, they can see column weekly on a Monday morning in the eye paper and mail on Sunday. I do a lot of foreign stuff and, uh, more investigative stuff there and then but I also write everywhere so i collect it all on a website but i'm always a bit behind on posting up my stuff <laughs> but uh they can look at my back stuff there
0: brilliant all right once again thank you so much ian thank you very much it was, good to talk it was to great. you guys yeah thank you all right you. okay have a lovely cheers. rest of the day
2: cheers Bye. bye, bye.
1: That was good. That
0: was great. What an episode. Whoa. Uh, yeah, that was great. So, uh, yeah, at Ian Birrell on Twitter. And you can see, uh, read his uh, articles on, in the Eye and the Mail on Sunday. I don't want to say the Daily Mail again. I'll get, I'll get a finger wagging. <laughs> Uh, you can follow yeah, us yeah, this is website um you can e- follow us at challenging behaviors no that's not what we are. we're at challenging pod it's been a while since i've done this a month um yeah you can follow us at challenger pod or you can email us at, at gmail.com. that's what i was that's where i was heading there um uh, before we go there's something that's been going on on twitter and i was just wanted to say get tom's Views on it, because I think I might have a slightly controversial opinion, and you're all going to hate me now.
1: <laughs> so, uh, do you want to? I've actually not tweeted about it either. So, no.
0: so uh, recently, Eddie Stobart, the Lorry Company, which Connor was the biggest fan of,
1: would you? I think Twitter's made that pretty clear. Made
0: that clear. Uh, they recently said I would tweet like saying, "Oh, if you could name a uh, Eddie Stobart Lorry." What name would you give it? And they just had a flood of responses to have it named after Connor. Um, and then they said, uh, unfortunately, no, we only name it after females, despite having one named after a robot that changes and, into a truck. And, and Lee Rigby. And yeah, so they have some male named ones.
1: Yep. I feel like and as well. The You're response giving up too to that much.
0: That has there has been a lot of
1: shadow shadow minister for health, I yeah. believe. Um, that Oma comedian. Jalili? Oh, what's the name of the comedian? Um,
0: oh, the guy from he... Britain's Got Talent. Second place guy, lost voice guy beat him. I can't remember his name. The musical comedian fella.
1: Oh, a different guy.
0: Oh. Um, <laughs> Didn't Omid Jalili like it? Yeah, him. Yeah,
1: he liked it. He shared it. There was tons of people, um, basically sticking, sticking the boot in. Uh, I feel like you gave them too much credit. They didn't really say no. Unfortunately, not. They just went no.
0: Well, oh, yeah, sorry. That's just my <laughs> wording. No yeah, They, nope. they've. Yeah, I have to say, I don't agree with how they have responded to this.
1: Uh, my favourite moment of their response that actually left me gobsmacked was when somebody said, well, we could do this. And they went, actually, no, we can't. <laughs> yeah, so they, if anyone was going to so be So like, wow. a company
0: owned by Eddie Stobart <laughs> that is a truck lorry company said, we'll do it. We'll put it on. And then Eddie Stobart just felt the need to step in and be like, yeah, but that wouldn't
1: really count. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> It's, I mean, it was of, I'm laughing, but it it's is so it's sad. It's because it's so
0: silly, and it is—you know—it's rubbish. But at the same time, I'm—I think I have a slightly controversial opinion about it. Whereas I think, I think you, it would be much nicer if it, if it was named because they thought it'd be a nice tribute, rather than them being shamed into doing it. And I believe yeah. you disagree, Tom.
1: Well, I, I understand that, obviously, but that ship has sailed now. Oh yeah. And I, I actually... mean their
0: their responses obviously shit. <laughs> but it's just just that idea I think is yeah. that, that it being them being shamed into it. I don't know if it to me if it's if it's supposed to be a tribute and a well-deserved one it should be something that isn't they're doing just to save face if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah. I mean to be honest, I I don't really I agree. I understand what you mean, but to be honest, I think for me the reason I want the truck named after Connor is because Connor would have loved it. So I do not care how that happens because yeah. I couldn't care less about the stuffy Eddie Stobart CEO <laughs> who's like, oh, I really don't want this to happen. I c I couldn't give a shit about him. I to be honest, he's he's clearly a horrible man. Um I think the whole thing for me is just having a truck driving around with his name on it would be, would be brilliant.
0: No matter how it happens.
1: Yeah. And I think I don't, I I really don't care about their company. You know, I used to actually, I think this, the other thing is I used to actually take a bit of an interest in them because I'd grown up with someone who loved them so much. Now I could not care less about them. I think they are a waste of space. Um, I think the whole Lee Rigby thing as well looks a lot less good now because it stinks of, pro-establishment that suits them yeah backing someone who died who was a soldier but not backing someone who dies due to the fault of our own system it all stinks of sort of horrible kind of trying to be in a correct place politically i'd hate to see their political alignment as well i think it's all a load of i think it all stinks of crap and to be honest i hope i hope that the whole system shifts and there's just one truck left and it's just Someone writes Connor on it in a sharpie now. To be honest, I'm like I might do that. Just start running around writing Connor and sharpies on Eddie Stobart because they're reckon? a load of, load of twats.
0: Yeah, do you reckon the guy who uh, the CEO of uh, Eddie Stobart? I feel like we both have the same answer to this. We'll do a three, two, one, and it will be a yes or a no. And I feel like we're going to say the same thing. Do you think the CEO of Eddie Stobart voted for Brexit? Three, two, one. Yes,
1: yes. <laughs> I would imagine. Um, and I feel like as well that the really sad part is that actually that whole that that screen grab of where Connor wrote that thing saying uh, about Eddie Sobart when he died, saying, "Yeah, I'm really sad that you died. I really liked you. Yeah. Love from Connor." And it it just stinks of a fan being properly let down by some people who it wouldn't it wouldn't have changed their changed, lives yeah. at all to just put Connor Sparrowhawk on one of them. We weren't asking for it on every truck. <laughs> we weren't asking them to change eddie stobart's name to eddie connor sparrowhawk stobart trucks or anything like that it was just on one of your trucks with all these because the might have made na- all the names on those trucks there'll be 20 million isabels who have no idea or give zero shits that their name is on an eddie stobart truck there was one family and hundreds of people on twitter who genuinely cared about the name being on the truck and they just said nope ha ha ha! suck it that's basically what they did they just and they seem to take enjoyment in saying no it wasn't even i just felt very much like it was kind of just a massive kick in the kicking the balls to a a bunch of people who cared well i will no longer be reading their trucker member magazine you
0: not good so i'm not even going to read the next one because aren't they putting something about it in there
1: i don't know i mean i might read that but to be honest like I I feel like that was such a cop out. Yeah, I feel like that was just that's not what people but, wanted. But I can't help can... but
0: wonder what they're going to write. Like, are they going to write about the? Because when they are first, they I think anything. when they first said it was before you know they'd... their their initial thing was to say, oh, we'll put something in the magazine next month, and then
1: the internet exploded. The
0: internet exploded and it became you know a lot more them being defensive and stuff. I wonder if that's going to shape anything, but I guess time will tell.
1: Terrible PR for them as a company. It was terrible PR. I, was... I mean, the BBC article thing that was like,
0: <laughs> loads of people were being like, you're not like Greg's. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand what that was about. Uh, I believe Tom, you go to Greg's for your sausage
1: rolls. Yeah, of course. Um, Yes.
0: Only we understand what that is,
1: and only we will ever understand what that is. Um, no, it was just file, ter- got
0: the file somewhere.
1: <laughs> it was terrible PR, and it just stunk of um, really, really like piss poor twittering, basically from them, and just to keep trying to one up people. That was the bit I really didn't get. It was just, they'd already upset. It was trending in the UK, so they'd already upset most of the UK, and then they just hit you with the "Well, actually, that wouldn't even count." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <That's so sad. laughs> Write your name on that truck; it's not one of ours.
0: gutted. <laughs> oh, we could have made this all go away, but no, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the BBC article headline that was like, "They won't put name of dead boy on truck," was a horrible headline. Yeah, I hated that jamming. headline. I'm I be surprised the head- that
0: this story didn't become that. Like, <laughs> I
1: was, yeah, I was hated I the headline, but. Simultaneously, it didn't half fucking kick him in the teeth, did it? Like Mm. it doesn't look good, no matter who you are. You don't have to know the story if you just read a headline that basically says Eddie Snowbart don't respect Dead Boy's Wish. It's pretty heavy, like. All right. But yeah, that was that was my take on it. I think I don't really care what happens because for me, I don't care about the company anymore. I just want Connor's name on one of their tracks because that's what he would have wanted. Yeah, they could. To be honest, they could go, we really don't want to do it, but we're just going to write it on there. And I'd still be like sick. That's great. Cool. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to waste my time trying to convince you that you should be a better person. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm done with that. Not you, Jack, The Eddie <laughs> Soba. Great.
0: Um, all right. So yeah. Uh, like I said, I want to do a big push for this episode because I think it's a story that needs to be out. So Tom is pushing great mind work going on on this audio platform. Uh so, yeah, please do share this around. We want everyone to know about both uh, what's going on in ATUs and that Eddie Stobart. Were bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Is that
1: too far? Nah, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I've seen some Son real. Some of
0: things. the employees at Eddie Stobart. I'm not going to generalize all of you guys. I'm it's sure there's a lot of their staff would love it to happen. Yeah right uh yeah um tom say something cool
2: no still got it